So maybe this is an unfair question. How, how would you compare Wilson to Teddy Roosevelt, who is also a reformer and a progressive, at least that's the reputation, and Franklin Roosevelt, the great patrician, but yet also was always accused of being a socialist his entire, his entire life. There's certainly an interesting through line between Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Franklin Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, very young man. And many of the uh, achievements of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, he's looking back at the dreams of Woodrow Wilson that were never fulfilled because the day that Wilson took office in 1912, he says to a friend, you know, I'm so eminently qualified to reform the United States, to reform its economy, um, to reform uh, you know, tariffs and every aspect of life. Wouldn't it be an irony if my administration had the focus on foreign affairs? 1912. 1912, the world, 1913, he's inaugurated, the world looked very, uh, very peaceful, didn't it? in 1913, at the very end of the kind of Victorian world. But then, of course, the second half of his, his presidency is completely consumed by the greatest war in human history. And then his stroke. So there's a lot of unfinished business that's picked up in later generations by Democrats who deeply admired Woodrow Wilson. And it's extraordinary, actually, to see how much admiration there was for him among progressive Democrats really until about two weeks ago. <laughs> and then suddenly it's, suddenly it's changed. Um, were, were there any Jewish issues that came up during Wilson's tenure at Princeton? You, you mentioned maybe, you know, 6% of the, of, the, of the student body. Any particular or even any religious issues that came up um, during his tenure at Princeton? Wilson did nothing to, I think, increase enrollment of Jewish students, Catholic students. He did not admit blacks. This has become an infamous point of, um, of um, you know, our modern dislike of Wilson is that he wouldn't admit black students. Um, and I've suggested what, what he might have thought the reason for that was. Obviously, today we consider it you know, deplorable. But he did, I will say to his credit, try to reform the faculty. He did push extremely hard as a professor to have the great historian Frederick Jackson Turner brought to Princeton to be on the faculty, the most famous historian almost of all time. And yet Frederick Jackson Turner was rejected by the board of trustees because he was a Unitarian. This made Woodrow Wilson absolutely furious. He was just livid at that. And so when he becomes Princeton president, he is very quick to appoint the first Catholic to the faculty and also the first Jewish member of the Princeton faculty. So that's really historic. I mean, it's, again, one of the paradoxes of Wilson, he's devoutly Presbyterian and yet very open-minded towards other uh, religious persuasions. And also when he becomes president of Princeton, he doesn't make it more religious, actually not at all. He's the first non-minister president of Princeton and he makes it less religious. He immediately abolishes all the evangelical Bible classes that were on the books. And he reduces the chapel requirements. You don't have to go to church as often. So again, it's a bit of a paradox. So, so in, in, in terms of, of 
reforming Princeton and setting up Princeton to produce the next generation of American leaders. Did, did he have a certain perspective of the role of religion in American leadership that might have been different from previous um, presidents or pre previous influential people? I don't know. I think we tend to overplay the role of religion in his thinking. Um, it's fundamental to him, but his public policies, I think, were secular. It's intriguing to me, though, in, in the fights at Princeton, when he's trying to get rid of the uh, what he called the eating clubs. These were the uh, elitist social clubs that the Princeton students had established. To get into one of those eating clubs, you had to have a very wealthy dad uh, in New York, or Philadelphia, paying for this. And Wilson detested these clubs, wanted to get rid of them. He tried and failed to get rid of them. But he gets an interesting letter. It's from a Jewish student named Leon Levy. And Levy has quit Princeton in disgust. He's gone to the University of Pennsylvania. And he writes to Wilson. And he said, I hated Princeton. I was miserable there. He said, it's filled with snobbish, addle-headed young cads. And they drove me out. But then Levy goes on to say that I am so glad to see that a strong man has arisen, namely you, to lead the sons of Princeton forth from the bondage of narrow-mindedness and bigotry. So I find that absolutely remarkable. Clearly, this is one of those many, many young admirers of Wilson, many of them Jewish, who thought he was an absolutely outstanding uh, reformer. In, in terms of the, the personality and how he interacts with, with other people and looking and, and having a problem with people who disagree with him, who did he surround himself when he became president? The idea being either you surround yourself with loyal people or you also surround, but you also surround yourself with people who are willing to disagree with you because that's how you get to the better policy. He was, I must say, infamous for uh, surrounding himself with the people who agreed with him and uh, greatly discounting the views of those who did not. He gives a famous speech at Princeton. He's, he's in the White House now. He comes back to Princeton for, for his class reunion. No Princetonian would ever miss their class reunion. So he's talking to his classmates, um, and it's supposed to be kind of a private banquet. And he stands up and he says, one thing I have learned in life is that there are sheep and there are goats. And let me tell you, at Princeton, I learned the difference between the sheep and the goats. And he heavily implied that the goats were now running Princeton since he had left. That talk scandalized many of his classmates, but it perfectly, perfectly portrays, I think, his mentality. If you're with him, friend for life. If you oppose him, you're gone. Foreign affairs as president, his greatest achievement would be what? Again, he's known as the idealist, the 14 points, the League of Nations, his greatest foreign policy achievement. Well, as you know, he's, he fought so hard to keep us out of the war. And I, I do think that's an admirable instinct. Remember, Wilson had grown up during the Civil War, and that shaped him profoundly. He saw the horrors of that war up close. He did not want 
America to go back into that kind of chasm. Then the First World War, of course, came. And then after the war, Wilson was determined we were going to have the League of Nations, and it was going to impose order on the world. And I think of all things, that's what Woodrow Wilson wanted. He wanted order. He wanted the imposition of order on chaos. He's a highly rational man. So he's a marvelous reformer, marvelous in that. And so he travels the country pushing for that League of Nations. And I think this is his most heroic moment because he's really a visionary. And he sees the need for this to prevent future wars. And at one point he's on the train and he steps onto the back of the train to give the speech. That's how he, that's how he worked, town to town giving speeches. And there were hundreds and hundreds of little boys waving flags. And one of Wilson's companions said, President Wilson, isn't it marvelous to see all those little boys who come out with their flags just for you? And Wilson said, he said, no, I see them carrying those flags across future European battlefields. And of course they did. They did. Those boys did that. How, how did he view the Russian Revolution in 1917? Did he see this as perhaps a positive precursor for the working people and reforms? Did he recognize the potential uh, dangers of, of the Russian Revolution? Eric, you broke up a little bit there, so I didn't hear didn't okay. quite hear it. How, how, how did he view, how did Wilson view the Russian Revolution in 1917? Did he see that as perhaps a, a potentially positive sign for the international community, working people, progress, reform, or did he see and anticipate all the inherent dangers of the revolution? I, I may have to punt on that one, Eric, because I don't, I don't want to I don't want to say something that's not absolutely factual. That's fine. Can I punt? That, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it wasn't that, that and you're, break, you're breaking up a little bit. Steve. Yeah, I know. I know. Is now okay? Is now okay? Try again. You're lagging a little bit. Okay. Can you hear me now? I, I hear you. You're not quite in sync with the picture, but um, let, let's try. Okay. Okay. Um, what was President Wilson's attitude towards individual Jews, the Jewish people, Judaism, and Zionism, if there was any connection there? I think fundamental here, he's been called our most religious president. He's fundamentally very, very interested in the Bible, in religion. He can quote the Bible with incredible felicity. Uh, there's a famous story from Princeton where the head of the Princeton Theological Seminary uh, stands up to roast Woodrow Wilson at a dinner. And the president of the seminary has prepared a whole list of the parables of Christ. And he uses those cleverly to refute all of Woodrow Wilson's academic reform proposals. And after that, Wilson leaps to his feet in the back of the room and he rattles off twice as many parables in, in favor of his own reform policies, and he did it off the top of his head. So he is, he is famous for his, uh, his theological interests, for sure, 
And notice when he uh, writes the, uh, the charter for the League of Nations, he calls it the covenant. So being so devout, he, he prays by his bedside every night. Being so devout, I think he's extremely susceptible to the idea of Zionism. And his friend, Louis Brandeis, who will be the first um, Jewish person appointed to the Supreme Court by Wilson. And I'll say Brandeis and Wilson were peas in a pod because they both detested big business and were, were rabid reformers. Um, Brandeis comes to Wilson and says, you've got to back this British Balfour Declaration. You've got to back this British proposal. It's in the middle of the war now. And this proposal will take the Holy Land from the Ottoman Empire and it will give it to the Jewish people of the world. An extraordinary proposal, and instantly Wilson is uh, fascinated by this. This is the sort of great leap that Wilson uh, just loves. And he says, I consider it a privilege to restore the Holy Land to its rightful owners. So Wilson is instantly on board. And in fact, he says, with, with deep feeling, Imagine that I, the son of a manse, having grown up next to the church all his life, that it should be on him ordained that he should restore the Holy Land to the Jewish people. And this, you know, endears Woodrow Wilson greatly to Jewish people around the world, that he is on board with this. And that's tremendously important to have the president of the United States backing this Zionist ideal um, is quite extraordinary. And Wilson is always quite close to Jewish people. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but I think Wilson thought of himself as an outsider in American society, mm -hmm. proudly American. And yet he's a Southerner. South has been disgraced. He's a Southerner living in the North. He also calls himself a recent immigrant. Wilson's family only 70 years earlier had been entirely in England. He's been called, in a way, the, the least American president because he's, you know, he doesn't go back to, to the revolutionary period. And also, he's an intellectual in an era that's increasingly uh, commercial. And so I think, you know, just speculating, I think he does really admire um, what Jewish people had accomplished in the United States. And he wants to make it easier for them to immigrate and escape from Europe uh, when he's running in 1912. A Jewish newspaper in Boston runs in a big ad that said every Jewish person should support Woodrow Wilson because he's promised he will punish Russia for the mistreatment of Jews in Russia. And so there was great enthusiasm for Wilson among the Jewish people. And I think in many ways, that's still the case. Fascinating. Uh, just in portraying this, this very complex person and, and his ideologies and his philosophy and his personality. How did he get elected president? Was it just the sheer brilliance that, that just overwhelmed people? Was it just a, a, his, the historical timing that people were looking for this reform? It, it, it sounds like he might be a great candidate, but also perhaps a very weak candidate for president. Yes, his, his family didn't want him to run. They, his daughter threw herself on the floor in a hotel room and, and cried and cried. And she said, it will kill him. It will kill him because he was not a strong man. 
So that was certainly against his, his weak health. But the moment was extremely fortunate, 1912, because the Republican Party had split itself. This is the moment of the great progressive wave that's sweeping the country. And so you've got in that fascinating 1912 election, you've got three people running for president instead of two. And all three of those people are either former U.S. presidents or future U.S. presidents. You've got Taft as the conventional Republican. You've got the extraordinary dynamic Teddy Roosevelt as the progressive Republican. And then you've got Woodrow Wilson as this really remarkable Democratic candidate. If you look back, Democratic candidates in the past had often been rather rustic uh, figures, um, you know, uh, sort of loud orators, but highly unpolished people. And then suddenly, here is this technocrat, this, this ideal creature coming forth as a 20th century modern progressive figure, a university president. He's written the, the history of the United States, no less. I mean, he seems to, to know it all. The moment is perfect. And with the Republican Party split, Wilson wins. This is historic in many ways. Among other things, this is the first time a Southerner has been elected president since 1848. And to Wilson and to a lot of people, this represented the real reunion of North and South in the election of 1912. The South finally being brought back into the national life in a full sense. How do you think, in conclusion, how do you think we, the American people, America, should view Wilson's legacy from the perspective of 2021, where we see things so differently, and, and it's hard to get to all the nuances and the complexities of the time that he lived, because it's so different from our times. What should be his legacy, and how do you view the difference you know, tear down the statutes, rename the halls, the universities, etc. We the the collapse. You can, you can, punt, you can punt on that also if you want. That's fine. You can punt <laughs> on this one also. <laughs> the um, the the collapse of Wilson's uh, reputation has been extraordinary to watch. It's happened very very quickly. Uh, Princeton has taken the name of Wilson off the Woodrow Wilson School, uh, which it's been on there for probably 70 years. Um, a residential college at Princeton has lost the name of Woodrow Wilson, even though Wilson invented the idea of the four-year residential college. Um, and I just read that a school in Tacoma, Washington, Woodrow Wilson High School, is going to take the name off. It'll cost $500,000 to do that. So clearly, this is an urgent thing in the minds of many, is to eradicate the name of Woodrow Wilson. I think one thing that's going on here, it seems to me that Americans since, since the end of the Cold War have been much less interested in foreign affairs. Uh, Americans have turned their attention inwards, uh, often probing all of our sociological problems and shortcomings in, inside our country. Wilson preeminently was honored for being a great international figure. That's really what he was honored for. And we're not interested in that. There's no one left to, to, to uphold him or, or cheer him um, in the area of international affairs. And so then he does look very bad um, when you look at 
especially the things he wrote in that textbook, uh, History of the United States. A lot of that, if you look online, a lot of the, the quotations that are being used now to say, gosh, Wilson was, was dreadful, a lot of those things he said in that book, um, which was a kind of standard university textbook. And I think the problem there was he had grown up in the Reconstruction South. And so his, his view of Reconstruction was very much shaped by his own personal experiences. And I think you're getting some of his own personal emotion. Also, I think maybe his dad's personal emotion um, bubbling out in those passages. Wilson, not sufficiently the historian there, but um, I think as he often did, uh, revealing a little too much of his angry side and um, look at it 120, 30 years later, uh, it's really come back to punish him. This has been absolutely fascinating. Woodrow Wilson, Princeton to the presidency, Professor uh, Maynard, uh, Del Maynard, and thank you so much for your time and, and we appreciate it very much. And uh, it's just, you know, such a complex as, as you presented, but fascinating historical personality. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Ari. Thank you so much.